Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. How smart do you think Jesus was? Have you thought about that before? Like, do you think Jesus was smart? Was he an intelligent person? Uh, we've often said, and it's following some of C.S. Lewis's writings, that Jesus was much more than a great moral teacher. He, he's much more than a wise prophet. But surely he wasn't less than these things, right? Uh, my favorite uh, Baptist who would have made a great Anglican, uh, Dallas Willard, taught philosophy for years at USC, Southern California. And I love his work because as a philosopher, he always marvels at both the intelligence but also the wisdom that was found in the Lord Jesus. Um, not just in a wow, he's smart kind of way, but in a, oh, we should listen to him and do what he says kind of way. And that's key to placing our faith in and leaning with trust upon Jesus as our Savior. Here's what Dallas Willard once wrote. Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real-life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. He concludes this section, He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in human life. And so we listen to Jesus. Uh, we're going to spend a few weeks here in Matthew chapter 22. Um, and this is some of the most controversial, uh, confusing, and relevant teaching from Jesus in his entire ministry. He's hitting big themes, politics, death, ethics, the identity of the Messiah. Uh, some scholars have even, they've even seen an outline um, in the rabbinical teaching of his day they talk about four key questions, four ways of wisdom and knowledge. They say it looks like Jesus is intentionally pinging off that format, centering it on uh, himself. Now, those big themes, they all remain relevant today. They all remain uh, controversial today. I always chuckle when I read Matthew 22 because uh, Jesus violates almost every social convention we are taught here in the South. I mean, if you go to a dinner party, what subjects are you supposed to avoid? Politics, religion, and money. Well, yes, yeah, sex too. Um, <laughs> we could do that one too. <laughs> he doesn't hit that quite here. But um, <laughs> politics, religion, and money. And up for a challenge, Jesus hits for the cycle. He hits all of these themes as he interacts uh, with his opponents. Um, and I think that's because he always has, as Dallas Willard said, the best information on everything, and certainly on the things that matter most in human life. And he knows 
that these controversial issues, politics and religion and money, are connected in our lives, whether we realize it or not. And so as always, Jesus calls us to believe the good news of the kingdom of God, to follow him fully in every area of our lives, including uh, politics, religion, and you probably caught a theme in the readings, money as well. So let's dig into this passage together, Matthew 22, uh, 15 through 17. Um, My heading here, my Bible says, paying taxes to Caesar. And what I wish it said is, I wish it had a little picture of the half shrimp, half human Admiral Akbar from Star Wars saying, it's a trap. It is a trap. These people are trying to trap Jesus. Two groups have formed a very unlikely alliance, and it says that they have come together to entangle him in his words, to entangle him in his words. Um, These are the Pharisees and the Herodians, and the willingness of these two groups to work together shows how worried they were about Jesus um, and how much influence he was gaining amongst the people Um, There's a lot that could be said, but just as a quick sketch, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, we might think of them as the uh, conservative religious right of first century Israel. And they were beloved of the people. And they were saying, hey, if we do these things correctly, we have a hope that God will deliver us from these ungodly Romans who have taken our land. It's just we're not holy enough. We need to get back to the basics and the things that matter, and God will act again. So the folks were like, hey, this is great. We will do and follow what you say if it leads to that path. Um, The Herodians, (laughs) they're the opposite. When you hear Herodians, do you think of King Herod? So King Herod, who's King Herod? Well, King Herod and his kids, they are the puppet kings of Rome. They're the sellouts. They're the ones who said, if you put us in charge, we will rule over our own people and tax them and hurt them and do everything we can to make ourselves rich off their backs. The Herodians at this time were were the compromised, hedonistic elite left of Israel. And they were aligned with the Roman occupiers. Do you get that? The far left and the far right the populist and the elite, the moralizers and those who lived for pleasure came together, put aside their differences and said, we got to deal with this guy, Jesus. He's getting too influential. I mean, I don't want people to listen to you, but we definitely don't want him to listen to him. And so they're going to try to entangle him in his words. Now, part of the problem is he doesn't fit on their grid. He's blowing up their categories. He wasn't far right or far left as they saw it. He wasn't all grace or all truth. He was the fullness of God in human form. Fully God, fully man, full of grace, full of truth, beautifully, perfectly balanced. And part of this trap is they're trying to force him to pick a side. And they're hoping that if they can force him to pick a side, he will alienate the other half of the country. So they ask an explosive question. 
And they start with a little ironic, true words of flattery before they go for the jugular. Teacher, you could just, the insincerity is dripping. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. In other words, go ahead and say something explosive. We know you will. We trust you. Then they ask their question, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, give us a definite yes or no answer to this explosive, hot-button, pertinent question for them that has the potential to alienate others. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright, who I'm indebted to as I read this section, he says the issue of paying tax to the Roman emperor was one of the hottest topics in Jesus' day. I mean, think about it. Imagine how you'd like it if one morning you woke up and a foreign empire invaded your land, took over, and said, hey, if you'd like, you now have the privilege of giving us lots of money. How would you respond? I mean, revolutions have happened over less, right? (laughs) Um, Taxes are a big deal. And when Jesus was growing up in Galilee, um, there's actually a man named Judas who stood up and said, we're not going to pay taxes. We're going to revolt. And you know what happens when you revolt against Rome? They crush you. And they line the roads with crosses with revolutionaries on crosses. Uh, In other words, Jesus was very aware that there is a danger here. He is not just maybe going to get entrapped by his words in the sense of his influence. And if people listen to him, uh, this question comes with a health warning. Answer this wrong, and you might end up on a cross. Rome had made sure that message was loud and clear. But at the, other time, at the same time, if you, were, if you were leading a movement about the kingdom of God, well, surely you would have an answer to this. And surely you would have something to say about Caesar and something to say about uh, the hot-button issue of their day. Jesus is facing Roman spears on one side, depending on his answer, and the daggers of the revolutionaries on the other. So let's watch how Jesus here just threads the needle. Um, He escapes their trap, and he gives us some some wisdom on how to think about uh, money and politics. He takes their trap and turns it into a show and tell. That's what we see in the next section. Jesus is not fooled by their flattery. Verse 18 says, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. So what's happening here? Well, first of all, I just want to be clear. They had a valid question. But they were asking it in completely insincere ways. They weren't asking a question to get an answer. They weren't curious. They weren't trying to balance faith and doubt. They didn't want to listen to Jesus. They asked this question to trip him up. Um, to get him in trouble. Um, They don't want an an honest answer to a valid question. They want to invalidate him. And so he actually, instead of this direct dialogue, he goes a different direction 
and he answers their question with a question, and he calls them out. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I know your malice. And then he has this show and tell thing. It, it's really interesting. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. Like, what are we talking about? Let's get it on the table so we can see how to respond to this. And they give him a denarius, which is the equivalent of about a day's wages. So whatever you make in a day, imagine they pull that out on a coin. Um, and that's what they have to show Jesus. And he says, okay, well, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. Now, this sequence is genius. Because asking them for a coin is the beginning of his answer. Because what is he actually inferring? I don't have one of those. <laughs> I mean, you guys are so worried about paying taxes to Caesar, and you've lined your pockets with his coins. Let's really get to the heart and root of the issue. They have these coins. He doesn't. And the coins themselves, um, we think, okay, this is controversial because no one wants to pay more taxes than they need to. Um, we don't have to understand first century context to know we don't like paying taxes. Am I right? We don't want to pay more than we have to. We want to do our fair share, but man, if there's a, if there's a write-off, like, let's find it, <laughs> okay? Um, no, it wasn't just about the taxes. Um, part of it is that in the first century, these coins with Caesar's face were portable idolatry. You weren't supposed to put your image on anything. And so if you walked around with these coins, you were walking around with portable idolatry in your pocket. That was part of the issue that Caesar had stamped his image on these coins. Jesus goes on to say, um, rather dismissively, honestly, like not just give, but just render. I mean, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's saying, well, you know, if, if his picture's on it and, you know, it belongs to him, like, yeah, give it back. Like, we don't need that. It's portable idolatry. <laughs> but more importantly, render or give back uh, the things of God to God. A couple principles here that are, that are curious. Um, is that in some way, Jesus here kind of anticipates Paul's writings in Romans 13, and that he's affirming the role of government, even bad governments. Um, the teaching in the New Testament is uh, pretty sober and realistic when it comes to governments. Um, and basically, the, the teaching is that even bad governments are preferable to anarchy and chaos. There's a role to play in that. Christians are called to participate in the common civic life, especially if they benefit from it, uh, to give a measure of honor and respect, but also and always to call us to something higher. And certainly to call out any pretentious total claims of allegiance or worship that could lead to idolatry. Um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. Similarly, one scholar, Dale Bruner, said Jesus' great sentence here does not answer all of the questions about Christians' relations uh, to the state and politics. Almost every day, we must ask ourselves afresh if we are giving too little or too much of our energy to the political matters of our day. 
said Jesus' Caesar sentence here is a slide rule, asking us regularly to readjust our use of time and priorities. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. Um, Some of y'all know that before we came here, we served um, a large church in suburban Dallas, Texas. Um, It was pretty monolithic in terms of politics. (laughs) Everyone was kind of on the same page. It wasn't a battleground state. Um, I remember one time I got in trouble because uh, one of our members wanted to, to have a voting drive because he was worried that one particular party was going to take over. And I was like, dude, that's not how math works. (laughs) Like, we're in suburban Dallas. We know how this county is voting. Um, Everyone here at the church is registered. (laughs) Like, what are we really trying to accomplish with a voting drive in the fellowship hall? I think we're trying to signal uh, which team we're on, not actually accomplish um, anything. And and so there there was a little bit of an obsession with politics. It had become... Uh, a distraction. Um, it had become an idol. Um, uh, Father Bill Stanford, who's on our staff, he runs uh, Things for Us, but also The Inner Room, which offers counseling. He once talked to me about these two uh, circles on a Venn diagram. And he said, there's one sphere, and this is your sphere of concern. These are the things you care about and think about and give your attention and best thought to. And then there's another circle, and this is your sphere of influence. And these are the things that actually you're called to steward and pay attention to and have action for in your life. It's that sometimes what we do is we spend all of our time um, either concerned about things we have no influence over um, or the reverse. Instead of going, what things should we be concerned about that we have been called to pay attention to and to steward? Um, and to give thought to. Um, and so in that context, politics had become just this, this difficult thing. Um, but politics is not the only thing Jesus is talking about because he's talking about money. And as big of a problem as politics was, and I'm going to say for, for us, I mean, it was, I'm not trying to distance myself from that church. Man, materialism and comfort was an even bigger idol. How we thought about our money, how we stewarded the gifts that God had given us, how we thought about generosity. And that's where the second half of Jesus' answer is so pertinent. Render to God the things that are God's. And the logic is fantastic. He's saying essentially, if something bears the image, we'll give it back to the creator of that image. So if Caesar stamped his image on the coin, give it back to Caesar. But where has God stamped his image? On us. And so we render back not just our coins or a tax or even a tithe. We render back our entire selves to God. That's what he's calling them for. He he counters their hot-button question with a more important framework for humankind to render to things the things that are God's. We belong to him. We're called to full allegiance uh, to him. We, We are returned to and rendered to and find our place and purpose as we rest in God and the things of God. And part of this is certainly a call to worship. I mean, did you hear that wonderful psalm that we read? Psalm 96, um, render to God the things that are God's. He says, ascribe to the Lord the honor due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. 
Verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor, the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. A call to worship and awe and reverence and generosity. Um, And of course, that involves bringing offering. You probably caught the theme in Malachi 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord the honor to his name. Bring offerings and come into his courts. We get to Matthew 22, render to God the things that are God's. And like, it almost just sets it up on a T. What are we supposed to think about today? What are we supposed to look at today? Um, well, I'm going to have a lot of colleagues and friends. We all, we all do the same readings. And they're going to do a stewardship sermon today. They're going to talk about money. Some of them may do a pledge drive, which is like, hey, write down how much you're going to give us next year. Um, let's talk about tithing. Let's talk about generosity. Um, and I get that. And, and I can appreciate that. And there's wisdom in attending to how do we think about our material goods. Uh, there is worship and discipleship revealed by how we are generous with our money. Um, it's a huge issue. Um, and here's what I want to submit to you today. And I'm, I'm going to spare you that entire sermon. It's a huge thing. Tithing is a huge thing. But it's only a first thing. It's only a first step. And here's the thing. Um, It's overly simple to think, well, we give Caesar his tax and we give God his tax. These are just the dues that we pay on a regular basis for the goods and services of uh, God and the things of God. But that's the thing. When we're talking about politics and religion and money, God isn't here for our taxes. He's not here for a percentage. He's not worried about 10% or 12% or uh, what about, is that before or after the taxes are taken out? Those are good questions. Have those questions. God's here for 100%. He calls all of us to himself. And so, of course, a huge first step is how do we trust the Lord with our finances and open our hands generously to give? And of course, a 10% tithe is a good and hard and huge first step. But he's asking for the whole thing. Um, and, and it's appropriate for God to ask for the whole thing because he gives himself fully to us. And he overflows with grace and joy and generosity to you and me, so we only give what we give as a response to his great generosity and love. All right, politics, religion, money, any other uncomfortable topics we should hit today? Sex, I heard called for earlier. Um, We covered that in the foundations class yesterday. (laughs) It's a great morning. Um, Yeah, what happens? What happened to their trap? Well, it says the Pharisees and the Herodians, um, it says when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. I always imagine that went away in Greek meant they slunk away like a rat. They just, oh, that didn't work. He got us. We didn't entangle him and we didn't like what he said for sure. Uh, And then they kind of go away and go, okay, how do we just kill this guy? Because entrapping him in his own words didn't work. 
We've got to get rid of him. This is setting the stage uh, for a, a deeper battle with Caesar and with Rome. Um, and that's the thing. They thought that was their fight. They thought the whole thing was what they saw in front of them. The politics, Rome, the empire, the land, what they had, what they didn't have. And Jesus has come for a far bigger fight. Uh, Jesus would say, uh, here, um, the kingdom of God will defeat the kingdom of Caesar, but not by conventional means. No, but by the victory of God's love and power over death and over sin and over evil and over darkness. Jesus is he's like, man, you guys are focused on this thing right here. There's something far bigger happening in God's plan and his economy. Jesus uh, didn't come to wage war against other people. And we're not called to wage war against other people either. No, Jesus came to wage war primarily against sin, death, and the devil. Um, that's the fight. That's the fight between all the skirmishes we see in the intermediate. And he calls us to join him with that, to be part of his kingdom, to share in his victory and share in the forgiveness and the life and the peace that only he can bring. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.